This is Dirt Road Less Traveled, where we talk about life with a capital L and take on the big questions such as who am I really and why are we even here? I believe we're here to express the hell out of our true selves, freely and unapologetically. So this is the show where we talk about how to do just that. I'm Maya Wild. Welcome to Dirt Road Less Traveled. I'm really stoked to get to share my conversation with Dr. Andrea Slominski with you today. She has created a new term and an entirely new way of looking at women's lives from say around 45 to like, I don't know, 70, 75. I feel like she counts it from 45 to 70. You know, this whole idea of like, you're a maiden, like you're a beautiful little virgin, young, young thing, sweet young thing. And then you're like a mother, right? Oh wait, what about those of us who never were mothers? Oh, well then I guess we don't count, right? <laughs> right? And then you're a crone. That's the way it's always gone. But she has an entirely new way of looking at it and a new name for this chapter from 45 to 70. She calls this the Regency phase. She talks about how a woman's life is changing her body is changing, again, along with your mind and feelings. And she is calling this 25-year stage of profound change Regency. How much do you like that? I love that so much. She helps women 45 plus navigate the rough seas of menopause and midlife. And what I found really fascinating about our conversation among everything, <laughs> um, and we dance all over the place. So you'll, you'll, you'll hear us talk about a bunch of stuff. And I, you know, just, I don't know, do I need to give a TMI alert? I, I love too much sharing. I love oversharing. I love people who overshare. I like oversharing and I feel like it's a really important thing that we have places where we can just share and talk freely and openly about absolutely everything. And so if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that's what I'm all about. Uh, Dr. A, as she's known, and I go through that. We, re we Don't worry, there's TMI in this, so get excited. And she, I'm just going to read a little from her website, which is drandreaslominski.com. So drandrea, S-L-O-M-I-N-S-K-I.com, drandreaslominski.com. And you'll see the, the link to her website in the show notes. And she created the Heroine's Path to help women 45 and up acknowledge and influence the physical, psychological, and spiritual life changes they're encountering. How great is that? To acknowledge and influence all those changes. And she goes into detail around the physical and psychological and spiritual changes. I learned new things talking to her. And she really discusses, she creates, she revamps all of those stages that I just shared with you and incorporates like, okay, what if women didn't have children? You're still doing, you know, cool meaty things in the middle of your life, like in that, in those, the normal mothering years. And she has a new term for that. And she talks about how whether a woman was previously enmeshed in raising a family or caring for other people or just completely independent and career-minded, or both, obviously, that the processes of perio, peri, oh my God, guys, it's Wednesday. This podcast is coming out a little late and I'm sitting at my desk today going, wow, I, my contact lenses feel blurry. I am like, I pushed it Monday and Tuesday and now I'm like, woo, time for a nap to watch a lot of back-to-back -back Dateline episodes. I don't have that. That There's no room on the schedule for that today, but we're just going to deal with me um, talking about perimenopause instead of perimenopause. Perimenopause, yeah. So she's talking about whether whatever your life looked like up until now, 
that the process of perimenopause, midlife, and menopause really create actual changes in the body and in your psyche, which I've been discovering. And I'm loving this time of my life. Literally, I don't like how fat I am and how I seem to not be able to do anything about that. Like, I, I really am looking forward to influencing that. I just had this big belly and I hate it. I also have ovarian cysts and other reproductive issues. And I, I it's so uncomfortable and I just don't feel like me, but everything else is better than it's ever been. And so she answered a lot of questions for me about all of that. And just those changes in the body and the psyche. I had no clue that my psyche was being impacted. Uh, so cool. And so she talks about how some days we might find that we're just like kind of going with the current and some days we're struggling against it. And other days we're like dashed against the rocks or beached. And she wants to emphasize that you are not alone and you can really make it across into new territory. And that women are discovering that at age 45 to 50, something new starts happening. And that the other side of midlife or menopause can be one of the most inspiring and fulfilling times of our life, which sounds phenomenal. Let's get to it. Here's my talk with Dr. Andrea Slominski. Hello, Dr. Andrea Slominski. Did I did I get your name right? Yes, you did. Hello. Good morning. My goodness. Good morning. What a what a technological uh, marvel to get this working. <laughs> Just a marvel. I, I was like, what word is she going to use right now? <laughs> I like that spin on it. But here we are, the miracle of the app. Yes, yes. Here we are, the miracle of the app. Yes, exactly. And um, if the barking dog in the background gets too um, distracting, let me know and I will go to headphones. Absolutely. And if my cat makes an appearance, we will just roll with that too. So <laughs> in this digital, already, we're, this, we're give, what's that? I was just gonna say this digital work from home sitch, you know, you just got to kind of roll with it, right? You know what? I absolutely love it, honestly. And I think that what I was about to say is we're already modeling for listeners how to do life our way. <laughs> like this is Regency friends, <laughs> right? Just yeah, like, take Take it as it comes, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, because I do think, and and I'm I'm just um I'm gonna say this and then I'm like, no, I just want to hear from you. But my thought occurs is, you know, just all of that. I one of my biggest insecurities when I first became uh, a life coach was I'm just not gonna be professional enough. You know, I met our mutual friend Annalisa Durr through acting and restaurant work in New York City over a dozen years ago. Oh, awesome. And, I, yeah. I yeah. Here also, but that's another day. Okay. So, <laughs> but, but so that was the life that I lived was artsy, starving artist, very proud of it, kind of messy. And so I always had this fear that I wouldn't appear professional enough. But what I have discovered is that women are tying themselves in knots to appear professional and then getting really sick because of it. And then doing things like fleeing the corporate world to go be a life coach, to get away from it. And so I feel like now I suddenly have this strength to offer. It's now a gift that used to be, it used to feel like it really got in my way, but this idea that I'm having, and again, you can tell me if my history is way off, but this idea that men designed that way of being quote unquote professional, and now we get to reclaim it and design it however the hell we want here at home, especially in, I would say, midlife when we're just so done with being 
caretakers and, you know, playing, coloring within the lines or however you want to say it. So that's, that's, that's what I think when we talk about this. Yeah. I I mean, exactly. Well, we could talk, we could have a a retreat and talk for five days about everything you just said. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, you know, looking at, at women trying to fit into whatever it means to look and be professional. I mean, this and this is a buzzword, and I don't care. I'm going to drop it. I'm going to use it, and then we're going to get beyond it. But um, because it's very real, you know, we live in a patriarchal culture yeah. that is thousands of years old in a patriarchal world, right? And there are very few matrilineal or uh, a feminine-focused uh, living cultures on the planet at this point. And that's fine. That's where we are in history. That's what's happened. We have to deal with what is. But certainly within the patriarchal constructs of our culture and, of course, of the global north and of Western culture, which came out of, you know, the classical Greek, that's our, that's our history, that's our psyche, that's our mythology, that's everything at the kind of ground root of everything you know, is, um, was set up for, you know, men to go out in the world and do that hero's journey thing and women to stay in the, in the sphere of the home and do the heroine's journey thing. And, um, you know, never the twain were supposed to meet. And so now as we go forward and humanity evolves and consciousness, consciousness evolves and women go out in the world and, and want to do more than just a prescribed role. Um, yeah, women have been trying to, fit into that, that corporate, you know, that corporate model. And then they get to halfway up or to the top of the ladder and they realize they're on the wrong ladder. Oh, well said. You know, it's just, it's, um, it's different, you know, trying to, and it's the whole thing, you know, of, you know, women who are ambitious are considered, you know, you know, ambitious and, and, um, and strong and, and, uh, opinionated and driven or considered, you know, to be bitches and to be, you know, whatever, whatever long line of negative adjectives you want to put behind an ambitious woman, you know, um, and in the way that culture perceives her. And, and certainly, you know, looking at Regency, looking at like life for women in just, let's just look at the U S cause that's where we are since like the 1900, the turn of the century. Um, this is where this is where all of this started, you know, when consciousness started to shift, we had uh, suffrage and women's vote. And then we come forward. It's the beginning of psychology. It's the beginning of depth psychology and and um, archetypal psychology and all that goes with that. And uh, the beginning of the women's rights movement and the, you know, the. Uh, civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the trans rights movement. And now we have, you know, fluid um, identity and gender and and we're evolving so fast. And through this, women have been trying to create an entirely new um, paradigm for Mm -hmm. how to live in this world. Like, does it mean that if you want to get married and want to have children, that that's a bad thing? Does it mean that if you don't want to get married and don't want to have children, that's a bad thing? Does it mean that if you're ambitious and you want to build a business and you want to make millions, is that a bad thing? Um, You know, um, there are so many judgments out there based on what path a woman takes. 
and what she decides to do. And a lot of this um, kind of creation of new paradigms started in that turn of the century. And we're, we are living into it. We are creating it. There are no maps for this. This is why it gets, we get sometimes so confused and so lost. And I don't know, it's why I really love talking about women's life stages and, and what happens when we hit midlife, what happens when we hit perimenopause, what happens when we hit menopause, when, like you said in the intro, we don't want to be the caretaker anymore. When after 30 years of putting everyone and everything else first, your career, your family, your friends, your siblings, your parents, whoever it is, whatever it is you're caretaking for, you know, you wake up one day and you go, Hey, it's my turn. You know, I gotta, I gotta focus on me. What do I want to do now? You know, what am I called to do? What is my, what is my renewed meaning? You know, what do I want to leave as a legacy? you know, from, from my energy, from my soul. So, yeah, I just think that everything was set up in a patriarchal construct. And so, you know, coming out of, of that whole thing. And then in the sixties with the, you know, the free love movement and the women's liberation (laughs) movement and all of these different changes and in looking at ways to be socially correct or morally correct. um, Yeah. Women have had a, really different road to hoe than men. Not that men didn't have to adjust as well. And I'm not anti-men. I'm married. I I love men. They're great. They're just different. Very. (laughs) And and their lives are different. They don't live the embodied life that women live. They don't go through the, the, the psychological and the physiological and the spiritual shifts that we make from the time we hit adolescence. Yeah. And I think also, I'm just thinking back, as soon as you said that about hitting adolescence, I just thought about, you know, from the time I was 10, I mean, prior, because I was experiencing a lot of sexual abuse from the age of six, or not three on, like three, age three. But at age 10, I just remember, and I was pre-puberty, but really that male gaze and being like lasciviously looked up and down, that's something that men do not experience. And I've had some male friends who will have an experience with, say, some a woman at work, maybe like an older and more um, senior woman. Uh, one boyfriend of mine had that experience where she was getting a little bit handsy with him. Um, and he was like, what is going on? Or I know <laughs> another boyfriend had that experience with... Um, uh, in the locker room at the gym night after night with a, a man who was attracted to him. And the guy I was seeing was straight. And he was just like, how do women deal with this? And so just, to, I wanted to say that because just as you made that comment, I thought, yeah, we have biological and physiological and embodied differences and social and cultural differences. But then there's also that experience of women, girls are experiencing themselves from the outside in from very, very young too. So we just have a completely different experience of like being a body moving through the world. Oh, absolutely. That objectification is something that starts, oh, you just look at, you know, oh, isn't she cute in that dress? Look at her, so adorable. And it's not that she's not adorable. It's not that she's not cute in the dress, but you know, um, the, the, the standards of 
And and that's changing. I mean, I, I think I'm looking at it from my perspective. You know, I'm I'm about to turn 64. So I'm looking at it from a different perspective, say, than a woman who might just be in her late 20s, or early 30s and starting her family and raising her children with, with no gender specificity and letting them be, be who they are and, and having the, the benefit of that whole type of thinking. But um, there still is a lot of social pressure, you know, that that we're that people are talking about, you know, how do you raise children? What do boys, how do boys be boys? How do girls be girls? And, and the different experience that girls have, like you said, from a, a very young age, and I don't want to go any further without acknowledging the, uh, what you shared about your personal history. And mm. um, I just would like to say that um, that is just such an amazing um it's just amazing that you're here talking about it. It's amazing that you're able to um, be standing up and breathing and and working through your trauma with whoever you're doing it with and however you've done it in the past and however you continue to be able to live with what happened to you and what was done to you that, you know, was completely out of your control. And well, I want to honor yeah. that before we go any further, because that's huge. Well, cool. And I appreciate you saying that because I, I think I talk about it so freely. I think sometimes I startle. Often I startle people, but it's also a great opportunity, just like what you said. It sort of highlights, well, this happens a lot. And I have had a massive healing journey. I started at age 21 to really consciously recognize that I'd probably been sexually abused, but it had, of course, shown up in other ways prior. Mm -hmm. um, and I had talk about no roadmap. I had no roadmap for that. Um, and I just, well, there's just a couple of things I want to say quickly to it so that, cause I know sometimes when it comes up and it's a really big thing and then women listening or men listening, cause I've dated several men who had sexual abuse in their childhoods. Um, just, you might, they might be having a trigger response or some kind of a, a response to it. Mm -hmm. Mostly we, we try to be avoidant. That's just not my style. I'll just <laughs> say that out loud. <laughs> never has been. And I've always been outspoken and wanting to speak out. And I think that's one reason why uh, it's both sort of shocking to me knowing who I am, my native personality, that that I was abused by three different men in my very early childhood. Uh, a pseudo uncle living with us, a neighbor's stepfather, and then a, a close friend's biological father that I didn't speak up. I will just say this. I thought my parents sanctioned it. How could they not know? Like I had no clue that this wasn't something they were sending me into. Right. Right. Just from that little child's perspective. Yeah. Of course. Um, but, but honestly, I've always had, I, I just learned the term recently, but that I'm clairsentient, meaning I can feel when something's off. It's my kind of intuition. So all through childhood, I would say out loud, like something's wrong here. And everyone was like, God, you're such a difficult child. Right. So <laughs> I always have been able to talk about this stuff and I just want to be able to give people permission to. So I forget even that it's a big deal. I just sort of mention it factually. Um, and I have done immense amounts of healing. There's still some stuff lodged in my body. I said something to my mother in my early 40s. I just turned 50 in July. So I said something to my mom in my early 40s, mid 40, I don't know, around 40. 
And she, I don't know what it was. I made a comment about something that was going on with me physically and maybe about like ugh, going to the gynecologist is always hard. And she said, I don't like, I don't understand what you mean by that. I was like, mom, because of the sexual abuse. And she literally looked completely confounded and confused and bewildered. Like what? But, but that was so long ago. <laughs> like, really? Like, I get it, mom. You don't want me to bring it up and it's hard for you to hear. But I was just so thrown by that. Like, what? what are you talking about? That lives inside of me as much work as I've done. I can still access that part of me that's like cringing or well, whatever it is. Against yeah, of it. course. Just because, you know, when you're at work or doing whatever one thing that it's not the first thing on your mind 24 seven anymore. That's that kind of trauma is something that you learn to live with. It never goes away. And it, I'm sure it makes her very uncomfortable because yes. she was supposed to protect you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's interesting and I don't know if this will, so I appreciate you like calling that out and bringing it out so that we can acknowledge it fully for us and for everybody. Um, and um, I also, what, what I'm looping it back to though, is like the theme that I am, that I brought you in to talk about, which just to say this, when I was 49 and a half last winter, I had a midlife crisis. It lasted about 72 hours, but it was really difficult and intense. And in it, I acknowledged that I am now in midlife and that there are some things missing in my life. And I realized I need to be more vivid, more outspoken, just claim who I really am. That's kind of the legacy. You know, when you use the word legacy, yeah. I don't know that it necessarily means like my oeuvre of work, although I am a writer and I'd like to get some writings out there, but it's more like the legacy of being fully who I am and not having a roadmap ahead of me of how to do that. I haven't had children and I've never been married. I am in a long-term relationship with a man. I've had a couple of those in my life. Um, and I'm totally good with not having had children. Another thing that people don't believe me when I say. Just oh, like I, I believe it. <laughs> you do. I'm like, I'm good. I feel like I dodged a bullet. I love kids, but I think I would have been an embittered, resentful mother from giving so much because I think I would have given so much. And so somehow in the middle of that through, as I again mentioned, our mutual friend, I saw your interview uh, she interviewed you on her journey to the goddess TV channel. And I just felt nothing but relief and, uh, like an aha of, oh, that's the stage of life that I'm in. And there's something I can, like, I can, I don't know, I could somehow pin something down, Andrea, with the work that you do of like, oh, I can understand, like I can orient, I think might be the right way to say it. I was suddenly felt oriented running into your work and how you talk about this. And just before I turn this completely over to you, I just want to loop back to the thing about my mother, which was that I think that there are times when a lot of us maybe who are strong or outspoken or just the next generation from our parents can become leaders of the previous generation. And so for me, Going from feeling like angry, traumatized child needing to deal with all of this stuff with my family and explain it to my mother and like guide her through it and not get the kind of support that I wanted because she didn't know what to do to in my 40s shifting to, oh, wow, my mother didn't have a roadmap for any of this other than denial. Right. And like, right. Um, <laughs> you know, for just pretending it's not there. Um, but. But to realize, to recognize that I'm in this time of life where I'm really stepping into what I feel is a leadership role 
I've lived long enough and I'm actually in a leadership role to people like my mother who have a complete, they're a different generation and different life experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, oh, there's so much to talk about. Um, you know, one of the things I just want to kind of jump in from, from what you had just said, where you said you kind of, when you were watching my interview with Annalisa, that you just kind of gave you a little sense of relief or, or that you yeah. felt oriented. And I, I have to say that um, it's kind of like discovering, rediscovering your compass. Yes. It's like, if you're not, and this is one of the, one of the metaphors that I use in my work. It's like, if, if you don't have a compass and you don't have a map and you don't have a guide and you're going to set sail into a foreign territory, you're going to have a much rougher trip. And so the idea that you can, as we move forward into this new new stage of life and and all of these new developments in the life of women, um, yeah, rediscovering that compass, realizing that, oh, this is supposed to be as un uncomfortable and um, sometimes unfortunate as it feels to be in midlife or to go be in perimenopause or to go through these transformations, to realize that these are pre-programmed into the the physical the psychological and the spiritual lives of women and to realize that this is supposed to be happening and that you can rediscover that inner compass and reorient your path right and say okay wow all right i'm not broken and i'm not alone right there's there's over 78 million us women today over the age of 45 like by 2030, there'll be over 87 million U.S. women over the age of 45. We are one of the most potentially powerful people groups in the world because we will be one of the most wealthy groups. Now, that's not all women, but statistically looking at the lives of women, how long they live, uh, they tend that this generation will inherit from their parents and from their their husbands, right? If they're married, or they will have um, all of the uh, uh, savings from their life, like if they've been working. Now, that's not to say that all women have that privileged situation, but I'm looking at it in a broad sense statistically. Yes. I'm not looking at individual um, instances of 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 the struggles that we, we go through, which a lot of them are financial for women our age. Um, at any rate, um, we um, are politically powerful. We are socially powerful. Women over the age of 45 make 89% of all of the discretionary financial spending decisions in U.S. households, everything from cars to vacations, to furniture, to groceries, to whatever. I mean, it's billions. It's billions of dollars. And as we know, money equates to power, like socially and politically. So mm -hmm. I feel like we are really uh, one of the most powerful people groups. And if we could decide what it is that we want to change and what it is that we want to do, that if we work together, we could change, we could change at least the U.S., political trajectory and landscape and um, priorities in, in two election cycles. But um, that's just speaking to, to our power as a people group. But um, 
really looking at, at, at what's going on and to maybe get a little bit more specific because I'm kind of talking around um, my Regency theory. And for those of you who are listening who don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, basically, um, I went back to school at 55 and uh, got my PhD at 60 and uh, studied uh, women's midlife transition, right? And studied world myth and other aspects of psychology. And I was um, lucky enough to go to Pacifica Graduate Institute, uh, their mythological studies program here in uh, Southern California. And um, what I discovered during the years of my study and my research with midlife women was that uh, since the year 1900, uh, women's uh, lifespan has increased exponentially. In the year 1900, white women were dead by 51. Women of color statistically were dead by 43. Now uh, women are uh, living until 80, 90. The lifespans of women of color have um, more than doubled. Uh, the lifespan of women of um, uh, Caucasian or white women uh, has um, increased by a third. And um, what has happened is, and why this is so significant, is right now, starting with boomers and late boomers, um, which I guess now are called Joneses. I, I'm not. What? Yeah, oh, I'm not, I can't keep up. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I can't keep up with the Joneses. Didn't even mean it that way. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I think, and, and, and then all the, you know, Gen X, Gen Z, everybody coming up, all the women coming up yep. behind us. We are the first women in the history of humanity. That's over 300,000 years to live past menopause as a cohort. Now, individual women have lived past menopause since the time of Plato. Yes. Individual wise women, grandmothers, whatever, but never as entire generational cohorts before in the history of humanity have women lived together past menopause. And not only are we living past menopause, we're surviving and we're thriving and mm -hmm. we're recreating ourselves. And so mythologically, for those of you that are into myth and goddess theory, um, women's lifespans used to be, you know, um, defined by the triple goddess or by three phases, maiden, mother, and crone. And what I'm saying is that now the it has expanded into four because in mythology, the goddesses always represent the lives of the women, not the other way around, because the mythological goddesses come from our psyche, our collective consciousness, our, our collective myth-making capacity as human culture, right? Mm -hmm. what, I, what I call it now is maiden, householder, because there's a lot of women who don't have children, yeah. a lot of women who mother their careers, maybe their families, their friends, their parents, uh, social issues, whatever it is they do. And there's a lot of women that live alternative lifestyles, like they have partners or they're single, whatever it is they do. And I think householder really fits those years from like 20 to say 45 when we're going out in the world and we're, we're, you know, putting our own homes together, our careers, our lives, the really busy, crazy years, right. Of building a life. So I call that householder. Then the next stage I call from 45 to 70 Regency because at 45, most women have started going into perimenopause. Some start sooner, uh, some start later. It just depends. It's very individual. 
But I call it Regency because it's the time of great transition when women start to go into perimenopause, they go through the menopause transition, they come out into postmenopause, right? But they're still vital and um, engaged and working in the world. And so I chose the word regent because to me, a queen, a lot of people, and I'm not the first one to talk about this, um, that the word queen to me means someone, well, and as now, of course, we're all thinking in our consciousness of Queen Elizabeth, right? The queen is someone who's set apart. The queen is someone who doesn't ever have to do dishes or laundry. She has people who are taking care of her. She never has to worry about finances. She never has to worry about what's going on in her life. You know, there's nannies, there's all these different things. And she, she gets to be Royal and, and live that life. Well, I don't know anyone who's, who's, who feels like they are living that life at the age of 45 and women now are having children later. So oftentimes regent women can be 45 and they can be taking kids to kindergarten. Yeah. And so they have one foot in two stages, which is even more difficult as biology and psyche pull you into the regent phase. And so, um, so not feeling very queenly, um, feeling more regent, more like, uh, someone who is um, able to lead, who's able to make decisions, who's able to administrate their life, who is going to claim sovereignty over their decisions, over their lives. And a regent holds space for a ruler to come. And I say that regent women are holding their own throne, if you will, if you want to use that metaphor, for the wise woman to come, right? Mm-hmm. Because we are then maturing into and and with all aspects of ourselves into that final phase, which some prefer crone. Um, I prefer wise women just because the women I work with, um, not all of them are into um, goddess theory and those kinds of things. And they feel crone is a more pejorative. And and I am not willing to fight the cultural uphill battle of trying to um, restore uh, the correct meaning to a word. (laughs) I have enough to do on my plate with my client. (laughs) Um, but so it's, so it's maiden mother household, mate, uh, sorry, maiden householder, regent, wise woman. And that's how I look at it. And so what I do is I basically am a big, big passionate advocate for women realizing that going into perimenopause, going into menopause and the other side of menopause is a a pre-programmed transformation that you can um, if you understand it and you work within it, that you can, you can't necessarily control it, but you can influence it. You can participate in it and you can decide how you want to go forward into your Regency and what you want to do. And it's a time for women who, for whatever reason, have spent the last 25 to 30 years tending everybody else's garden, Right. And taking care of everyone and everything else and putting themselves on the back burner, which is partly what we're programmed to do hormonally, instinctually, right? We are human animals, right? And so now going into Regency, we are finally like, yeah, okay, everybody needs to start taking care of themselves now. I want to do something for me. I want to find out who I am now. I want to rediscover my compass. I want to live my most authentic and soulful life and fulfill what it is that I feel maybe I'm supposed to do now. Right. And being in the now. So yeah, I, um, I, I was going through this whole transformation myself when I was in school. So 
my own gnashing of teeth and thrashing around on the floor, you know, metaphoric. <laughs> Not uh, always metaphoric over here, but I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, of the, of the midlife, you know, transition and the midlife is the psychological one. I mean, it's, it's big. It's realizing that, you know, that you do not have um, an unlimited amount of do-overs left in your life that even though, you know, death may be, may be quite far off that you're realizing, yes, that you are mortal, that one day you will be done, right. That you too will die and um, realizing, okay, what is it that I want to do with this time that I have left when I can focus on my passions, right. And who I am. And, you know, it's still, it's still tough it, and it's going to be tough because, you know, there are women who are, who are in Regency, who are caring for children and aging parents. The sand, yes. you know, they're sandwiched. Yeah. There, there are women who are, um, who are, you know, single uh, women having to work hard, not even being work one, two jobs, three jobs, not even being able to think about retirement. You know, not all women have have corporate jobs with pensions or state jobs with pensions. I mean, it 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 goes from you know from the bottom of the financial spectrum to the top. I mean, women over 65 are the people who most likely to live in poverty. So there's a lot going on in this life stage. And I just really want to help women understand that wherever they are in their own particular lives, that um, understanding and working within the, the paradigms of all of these huge shifts the physical and the psychological and the spiritual that you can um, recreate yourself wherever you are, right. In your, in your, in your journey. And you can rediscover that compass, that authentic self. And, and you can make the most of these Regency years, which are a th 20, potentially 30 years that no other women in the history of humanity have lived together have gone yeah. through this together and just the, the little capstone of it for me is I'm very concerned. My, my bugaboo is climate change. Mm -hmm. I, I come from a long history of environmentalists and um, I, um, I really think that the rise of the archetypal feminine in culture since the turn of um, since 1900, since the, the turn of the century, the last century um, is um, not a coincidence that at this time, when we need to nurture the planet, when we need to take, when we need to recognize that all life is connected, that all life is um, part of the same system, that we cannot go on in the way that we're going on, that we have to care for one another, that we have to find ways to make life sustainable. And if we don't, that, then that will be it. The planet will be fine. Right. Yeah. Planet and everybody else, humanity. No. Yeah. Well, we're, we're kind of like the virus that's causing the fever. I'm with you. Yes. <laughs> you don't have to convince me. Hey, it's Maya. I am excited to announce Maya Wilde's prescription for a personal revolution. 
That's a fancy way of saying that I've got some cool new mechanisms for you to get out of your own way in life and start expressing the hell out of your true self. Come over to myawild.thinkific.com. You can take my free life on fire self-assessment quiz because you need to know where you are to figure out where you're going to go next. You can join my private Facebook group, Wild Women on a Cosmic Mission and a Few Bold Men, where you get to meet and hang out with like-minded people as your real self. And I've also got a guided meditation on lighting your inner fire along with some journal prompts. There's a new masterclass to set your life on fire, the three keys to ignite your life. That's available also at myowild.thinkific.com. You do not have to walk this road of life alone and you definitely do not have to stay stuck. So click the link in the show notes or just go to myowild.thinkific.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe, share it far and wide and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I love hearing your experience of the show and I love having you as a listener to this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. so what I'm saying is, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the the that the rise of of the um, archetypal feminine and the extension of the life of women and the ability of women in this new stage of regency to make such a huge difference in the world. I think it's um, I think it's a a synchronicity of the universe. I think it's I think it's a beautiful opportunity that's being laid out before us. And um, I just want to encourage as many women as possible to, to find, um, find what it is that they're passionate about and what they want to do in this new life stage. There's some things that you're, you're talking about, Andrea, that are really striking me. One is this idea that um, women over 45 are one of the most potentially powerful people groups in the world. Uh, as we're going into these numbers that you were mentioning, mm -hmm. but working with women in their forties and fifties, they feel isolated, alone, and completely powerless. And so it seems to me like what you're sharing could be startling facts that it's kind of like, I have a, a corporate client who she's been an hourly, she was an hourly employee at a very large mega corporation that we all would know the name of uh -huh. and they she was an hourly worker and hourly workers were told not to fraternize with one another like don't go get coffee together it's kind of like you get out of prison you're not allowed to hang out with other felons like i feel <laughs> like there's something here where we don't want them to get together and talk because then they're going to plan they'll compare experiences and realize it's not them it's the system and i'm feeling like you're closing a circle here of Aha, like I'm having this aha moment of, oh, we're not alone. There's 85 million of us or whatever the numbers were that you were yeah. describing. And as a cohort, as a population group, we are powerful because we are going to outnumber people. And I mean, that just goes so against the lived experience that so many women have. Will you speak to any? I don't know if there's anything else you can say to that, but that's one that, that's one connection that I'm making as you're talking. Yeah, I, it's, it is, um, it is one of the sort of uh, dualities, right. Uh, um, that we live with, like living in the tension of, of saying, okay, oh my God, there's 78 million women over 45. Where are they? Why do I feel alone? Why do I feel like I'm aging out of culture? Why do I feel like I'm becoming invisible? Why do I feel like I've hit a glass ceiling? Why do I feel? Well, because we're in a culture that has perpetuated that for thousands of years. 
I mean, we're, we're living in a particular reality in a culture that despises at worst and ignores at best aging women. I mean, that's where, that's where we've been. That's where we are. And also looking at this new cohort, there's never been this many dynamic, creative, powerful, potentialized women alive together before. It's never happened. So, so what do we do? How do we, how do we make these connections, right? How do we work together? Well, I think one good thing about the internet, if you can say there's one good thing, (laughs) right? What we're talking here is that, you know, women can connect, you know, you can connect, you can find um, things that, that interest you or passions that you have. And um, I think that women need to, um, it's, it's hard to, women need to make the effort to find one another. You know, women need to make the effort to, if, you know, think globally, act locally, right? What, whatever it is that, that your passion is, whether you want to work in helping, you know, uh, election politics in your town, whether you want to work in helping the homeless situation, whether you want to work in helping environmental groups. I mean, even in the town I live in, there's, there's, for example, there's the Sierra club, there's, uh, you know, the boosters for the hospital, there's, there's breast cancer, there's, um, arts organizations. These are all nonprofits. There's, um, uh, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Um, there are all different kinds of organizations that um, a wildlife, you know, preserves and uh, and wildlife rehabilitation places. And it just depends on uh, what you're passionate about. You know, are you passionate about the arts? Go go volunteer, support the symphony, find other women your age, um, raise money for for you know charities, whatever it is. And for God's sake, vote. You know, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And, and get all your friends to vote too. I mean, it's- Or run for office. Or run for office. I mean, it, the whole thing is, is it's like, this has never happened. So everybody's kind of standing around scratching their head in sort of, kind of, is what we're talking about. And, um, you know, I just am really, and it's hard, you know, it's hard because even though the internet is there, for instance, if you have women who say like myself or maybe you or whoever who are entrepreneurial and are saying, okay, I've discovered this thing. I'm going to start this business. I'm going to do this. Right. Well, you know, the internet is great, but it's kind of like flying in a jet at 30,000 feet and trying to shout out the, out the, the open door with a megaphone, you know, yeah. and there's a hundred thousand other planes with people shouting out the door with a megaphone. But at the same time, you know, you have to find the messages that you resonate with. You have to find what is it that is meaningful to you now? What is what is meaning making in your life? You know, when one of the things that, that some women deal with at this time of life, whether it's in their career or whether it's in their um, their their family or their home life, let's call it sort of sort of. Uh, the empty space. I didn't want to call it the empty nest because not all women have children, but you call it the empty space, whatever it is that shifted in your life that is fundamentally changed. Like you either have, you wake up one day and you're like, Oh my, this job 
like you said, your client, right? This, I, I can't do this job anymore. Yeah. I've done this for so many years. I, I can't do this anymore. Or the, the family member leaves and the rest and, and you're sitting there in an empty house and going, now what, you know, this is, this is the time when we have the opportunity to dig deep and say, what is important to me now? And oftentimes that goes back to when we were very young, what our passions were, what we loved then, seeing if that's something that can be reignited or if it's something completely new. And then going forward and saying, you know what, I want to make a difference, even if it's a small difference, right? The the pebble in the pond metaphor, right? What's the pebble? Oh, the pebble? You mean you throw the pebble in the ripple? Yeah, the pebble in the pond. Yeah, you know. So if you have, if you have, you know, 87 million women throwing a pebble in the pond at the same time, you're going to end up with a tsunami. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and even though it's, it sounds, um, it sounds impossible. It, it's not impossible. Um, it starts with, I think the individual journey going into this tremendous time of change. I mean, now some women sail through perimenopause and menopause and have no problems. God bless them. I, I wish them all the best. I, I, they're so lucky. Other women are debilitated by the changes. Uh, some women have trouble with the midlife shift. Some women don't have trouble with the midlife shift at all, right? It's as individual as each woman. And that's the thing that makes it so unique is n- there's no one who goes through this the same way. But if you're awake and if you're conscious right and if you pay attention to your feelings and what's going on in your life and and how you're feeling about everything you you have to acknowledge that there's huge transformation going on huge and it you can't you can't the thing that the real problem I think for women in this culture, and this is what I deal with in my coaching is that our, our culture tries to bifurcate the embodied lives of women. They try to chop us up into pieces and women live such an embodied life from their first cycle to their last, whether they have children, whether they don't all the different things that happen to us, all the different things that we go through um, physically and hormonally um, so that, when we get to this perimenopause midlife shift, um, physicians say, oh, well, it's because of what's going on physically and your hormone cascade is changing and your profile is changing. And, and that's why all this is happening. And, um, and, uh, you know, oh, don't worry, it'll be over soon. Uh, don't complain about it. It's not that bad or, uh, take this pill and you'll feel better, whatever it is they're going to do. And then the psychologists say, or the the psychotherapists say, oh, yes, this is the midlife transition and it's this and it's all of these things. And it's it's this um, psychological shift, which it is, but never the two shall meet. Oftentimes, you know, you get like um, either cognitive behavioral therapy, which is fantastic, or you get marriage and family therapists, which are fantastic, right? And they're and talking about like what's going on or, or even psychotherapy, you know, what's going on for the person in the, in the transition. But there are very few clinicians who treat the whole woman, 
Yeah. Because in yes. my opinion, it's not just physical, it's not just psychological, but it's physical, psychological, and spiritual, right? Because the first two create incredible upheaval in the third, right? And so when you, it are, women's lives are like a tapestry. So when you have these three threads, when you pull on one, you snag the other two. You can't, you can't look at one without acknowledging the other two and how interwoven they are in our lives and how you have to, if you're going to um, deal with issues that come up or, or, you know, we find roots and, and stones to stumble on, stumble over on the path, right? If you want to deal with what you're stumbling over, you have to look at all three. You can't just look at one, right? Because they're so interwoven. And so, you know, I just, um, I think that we are creating these new maps. We are creating the way forward, right? And, and, and we're leaving signposts, guide markers, clues, um, metaphors, symbols, images for the women who come behind us, right? Yeah. When we create these new maps and everyone's map by definition has to be individual. Everyone's journey is individual, but we're experiencing a new universal rite of passage on a personal level. So how do we do that? Day by day, minute by minute, um, trail by trail, step by step, right? And it is an incredible opportunity, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. Will you speak a little bit more? Cause I'm following everything that you're saying and I, my, my own experience matches what you're saying. And, um, I feel like there's a little more information that I would like to have you share. However, it comes to you between those three, the three threads you just shared, were they, it's physical, psychological, and spiritual. Were those the, the three yeah. threads you mentioned? Okay. And then you also have talked about goddess theory. Will you just, I, I feel somehow like there's a connection between the two that I don't know how you want to speak to it, but I feel like those two are somehow connected. Would you just enlighten us a little bit more about goddess theory and maybe expound a little bit on those three threads? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's take three days. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> sure. yeah, um, one of the things that, the thing that excited me probably the most when I was studying and discovering this, what I felt was a new evolutionary life stage. And, and by the way, you know, my dissertation chair, like, you know, she was 85, you know, and she um, is one of the, uh, one of the leaders sort of in goddess theory and, 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 and uh, depth psychology for women Christine Downing. She's written so many books on, on the goddess and women and different things. And, you know, we had a lot of disagreements but um, each generation, I think, pisses off the one before it. So I, it, so in that sense, I think I fulfilled my my mission. But, Great, cool. But um, just really amazing. And and the mythological studies program I was in was really amazing because 
the goddess theory part of it is ties back into archetypal and depth psychology, um, which is what I base my coaching method in. And it's the idea that um, myths are stories that never happened, but are always true. And so in the myths of the goddesses and in the myths of, of, of world uh, tradition and religion, we can find stories that are metaphors for every human experience that we could have in a lifetime. And by looking into and tapping into some of these ancient stories, right? We can see that even goddesses suffer. Yeah. <laughs> no one is immune. Even the goddesses suffer, right? And so in looking at these ancient stories and tapping into them, we can find symbolic metaphoric and sometimes even somewhat literal points on our maps for understanding how universal the experience that we're going through is. And by looking at myth and seeing what women have experienced forever, right? And will continue to experience in living an embodied life. Um, we we take we we. It's like going from looking at a blade of grass with a um, oh, oh god menopause brain. What are those called? Um, uh, not a microscope. The um, the one that you hold over a paper on your desk when you're blind. A magnifying glass. Thank you. <laughs> Look at this. We're doing it together. Yes. Like a magnif. It's like from yeah. looking at a braided glass with a magnifying glass to looking at it from, you know, from space. Right. Yeah. So the mythic perspective on our lives, right. Takes us and gives us a really big, broader universal view of life. Right. And it makes us see that, Oh my God, I'm experiencing something that's a universal human experience, even though I'm experiencing it personally, intimately, I'm not alone. I am part of a huge, beautiful, great story, right? I'm, mm. I'm, I'm a chapter in this. I'm experiencing something that, that is universal, that is bigger than me, right? That is bigger than my life but yet I'm able to live it, to experience it, to be a part of it. So taking this this mythic view gives you a view on your life that realizes you, you're not alone, not only in the cosmos, but in your experience and that um, you're not broken. You're not broken. Yeah. It's, it's part of being human. It's part of working through what it means to be in a physical body that, that breaks down what it means to live in, um, in a psychological vehicle that has experiences of the underworld and darkness and depression, right? It means to, to see that this big, beautiful, complex human story is 
your life is who you are. And that wherever you are in that moment, right, wherever you are in your moment, in your life, in that immediacy, right, you're part of this great story. And that you can use these myths as signposts, as symbols, as metaphor, as guideposts, as maps to lead you through the best times and the worst times. Would and, you give, I'm sorry, I, I oh, just ahead, wanted to ask, would you give an example? Like I'm, as you're talking, I'm flashing through all of the myths. I was raised on, you know, Greek myths. My name is Maya spelled with an I. Like I was, my parents were all about that, but I don't, I think that there's, and I, of course, I'm interested in everything. And then again, we have our mutual friend who also studied this stuff, yeah. but I would like to hear from you. I don't know. I guess just what I want to know is an example of that because sure. I'm getting the stories, but I'm feeling like, yeah, I was raised with all those stories, but they're sort of separate from me. And I, archetypes <laughs> I work, yeah. do you know what I mean? They were yes, just crazy yes. stories of the gods and goddesses. Yeah. And, and they, they do seem really crazy. And the thing is, is that there's the story and you can take it like as a story on its, on its face. Right. And some of these things don't make sense. And then, but then you can take the, the, the depth psychological perspective, like the Jungian perspective on the myth and on dream and on folktale and on fairy tale. These all come from the same place from the human psyche. So based on what we had talked about, there's three things I could talk about. I could talk about Medusa, which I'll talk about that in a second. I could talk about Ariad Medusa about the male gaze, right? We'll go there. Mm -hmm. Ariadne, which is all about abandonment. Right. Mm -hmm. And we could talk about Demeter and Persephone, which is about midlife crisis, empty nest, individuation. Right. And, yeah. and moving out into the world on your own. So if if we look at these myths, like, for instance, the Medusa myth has been always a favorite of mine, by the way, just to yes. show, show, showcase my personality a little bit. Yeah, there we go. Um, you know, has and all of these myths are interpreted by different. Uh, psychotherapists, different psychologists, different mythologists, different writers. I mean, it, there's been a huge run on the rewriting of myths uh, by writers um, recently, um, such as the, the myth of Sears or the song of um, Achilles, these different uh, rewritings and reinterpretations of myth, like from the perspective of, of a different character. You can find them all like on Amazon and they're fantastic. Huh. But if we look at Medusa, um, so here we have a beautiful young girl, innocent, uh, virginal, which in those days in, in the ancient Greek means not married. It doesn't necessarily mean what the Judeo-Christian idea of huh. virgin wow. means, okay. but it means, it means one unto herself. It means she doesn't belong to anyone else. She's not married. She belongs to herself. This Medusa was one of the three Gorgon sisters. She dedicated her life as a priestess of Athena, right? In Athena's um, uh, uh, temple, okay? And so she was really, really beautiful. And um, all of the, a lot of the people that came to worship at Athena's um, 
Temple noticed how beautiful she was. And there's different iterations of the myth. Some, some myths say that Athena was jealous of her. Other myths say it had nothing to do with that. There's different, there's many different iterations of different myths. So the ultimate thing, ultimately what happened was Poseidon, the god of the ocean, right? What saw, um, Medusa and uh, she was so beautiful and he wanted to seduce her and she would have nothing to do with him. And so he chased her into the temple and he raped her on the altar of the temple. Mm-hmm. And Athena and Athena was um, so horrified at this one way of looking at it of the desecration of her temple uh, that she quote unquote punished Medusa by turning her into the, the crazy a girl with the snakes for hair, right? Mm-hmm. And that every time she would look at a man and a man would meet her gaze, right? She would, um, they would turn to stone, right? Another way of looking at this myth, which is the way that I like to look at it, especially with women that I work with, is that um, that Medusa had dedicated her life to to Athena and to a particular spiritual inner passion that she had a dedication that she had dedicated her life to this. And she had, she had decided to put aside any other kind of life that would have had to do with marriage, family, any of those sorts of things. So in, in the rape, Poseidon has completely, not only physically raped her, but has completely um, taken her entire dedication, her entire way of life away from her, right? And has has completely destroyed everything about and for her. So here Athena takes and gives Medusa this power, right? And now the snakes are a very, very ancient symbol of the power of the feminine. And they shed their skin. And so they renew themselves every year when they shed their skin. And they were a symbol of eternal life because of that, because they could self-renew. And the symbol of the snake or the dragon eating its own tail is also the symbol for infinity or eternity. So here we have these snakes, which are the symbol of female power and, and renewal, right? And she gave her the power to permanently eliminate even the suggestion of the male gaze from her forever. The male gaze that thought her beautiful, the male gaze that that made her of the most beautiful priestesses serving Athena, the fact that people went um, went to the temple and and thought how beautiful she was as, as well as right. Worshiping Athena, the idea that um, her life and her body and her sacred self were completely stripped from her because of the male gaze and because of the idea of archetypal male lust, right. And male power. So here Athena gives her, she can't give her back her virginity she can't give her back her priestess, her, her pure priestessness. She can't give her back any of those things that were taken from her. But what she can give her is the power 
to never have to endure the male gaze again. Oh my God, Andrea. I had such an experience as you were telling that story because as I said a minute ago, she was always my favorite and how perfect that we had the conversation about my experience in childhood. Right. And then the story of Medusa that I just instinctively clung to the possibility of claiming that kind of power. And not only that, but it goes further. Okay. Because Medusa, her power, right, is so intense that Athena then sends Perseus to kill her, right? And she is beheaded, right? To remove the head of the woman is to shut the woman up, Mm -hmm. right? To remove, to, to cut it off at the throat, to to remove the thinking, to remove the speaking, to remove the um, the higher consciousness, right? But what does Athena do? She takes the image, the symbolic image of the head of Medusa and incorporates it into her shield and carries it forever hmm. in front of her. So she, so does she, does she, Somehow, you know, why does everybody says, well, why does Athena punish her by killing her? I don't know. What do you think? You know, is she saying, well, you know, now you have power over the male gaze, but, you know, she's now considered a monster and reviled and has to hide in the wilderness. Is that a life forever? Or is it better to be taken back into the goddess and used as the power that she holds on her shield before her when she goes into battle for all time? I don't know. Are you looking for an energetic, inspiring, knowledgeable, wisdom and insight generating, mesmerizing speaker for your club, group, team, or mastermind? Those are not my words. Those are snippets of testimonials from people who've attended my talks. If you're looking for a speaker to galvanize your people into action, to break through life's general malaise and the ruts we all get into, and even the fear and anxiety and depression that's running so rampant in the world today, so that your audience actually has the lived transformational experience of connection, a sense of belonging and laughs their ass off at the absurdities of being human book me to speak at your event my most popular talks are driving the dirt road less traveled live a no regrets life as your wild free self which is a talk designed to motivate listeners to stop waiting for their real life to begin and to feel excited to get out of bed in the morning today heal old emotional baggage reclaim your fabulous intuitive self and uncover your true motivations so you stop falling off the wagon all while embracing the glorious mystery of being alive so you can finally express the hell out of your true self on this crazy ride we call life or you could go for this is not a rehearsal a crash course in claiming the life you were meant to live where participants walk away knowing improvisation techniques for real life situations create fewer regrets and recover fast when you didn't handle it the way you wish you had quick tricks for discovering your life's purpose and finding your tribe waste less time on people places and things that are not right for you and that laughter really is the best medicine no more crying over your life situation but instead happily embracing the absurd and laughing your way right through this life time and into the next one or you can invite me in for a channeled event created exclusively for your people book me at mayawild.com or by emailing me directly at hello at mayawild.com where you can request my speaker sheet media packet or to reserve your next level self-realization event where the talk is deep but never heavy that's mayawild.com or email me directly at hello at mayawild.com 
So it's a very, so, so looking at these myths and how they relate to our lives are very powerful. Looking at the myth of Ariadne. Wait, before you dive in there, I want to say I got very moved and emotional toward the end there. Like this whole experience of that myth and you just walking us through it just now is very powerful for me. And one thought that I have just in terms of that open-ended question, like, was it better? Why did she do that? Yeah. Just, I'm just going to interject my own. I, I I can already tell I'm going to be thinking and dreaming about this after, after our conversation is done today, but thinking about my own spiritual belief system and that I really feel that we're energies that, yeah, we come in and out of different forms. So I'm Maya in this lifetime, and then I've been other people in other lifetimes, and I'll go back to the other side as some kind of energetic light or soul. Mm -hmm. And so death doesn't feel as final to me. And again, I don't know these myths as fully as you do. And I also see how certain facts were kept from me as a child. I don't remember the rape. That, that Poseidon raping her. Yeah. Um, and so, God, so fascinating. But also just, again, this idea you keep talking about transition and rite of passage. And so I just want to interject where my thoughts are tending, which is we have to allow ourselves to flow in and out of form, right? In and out of time and mm-hmm. let things keep moving, changing, flowing, evolving, transitioning. And the thing is, is every time you go back into the myth, Maya, even if you and I work this myth for you privately for the next year, right? You will see new things in it all the time, all the time, because it's an archetypal field. And that field is a container into which we pour images, feelings, connections, dreams, right? Consciousness. And as much as each day is different from the next, and you can only be in the now, how could you not see new things in it as you grow, as you mature, as you move into different fields of being, right? So so working these myths, you know, Ariadne's about, on the face is about being abandoned by um by uh the um by the one who sh- whose life she saves right and then she um you know i don't know how much time you want to want to give me give us give us flesh it out for us i think for some reason i feel like ariadne is also important maybe for somebody listening so yeah okay hold on one second i want to pull something up on my desktop here um great here we are Okay, so, all right. Ariadne was the daughter of King Minos of Crete. Beautiful princess, right? And she falls, her her father is the one who has the um, minotaur in the maze, right? Mm -hmm. Minotaur is sent like virginal young people as a sacrifice from Athens and the minotaur eats these these sacrifices and, and the whole beginning of the myth is, is very interesting in in the, and how the Minotaur comes to be born because the Minotaur is the brother of Ariadne. But anyway, we don't have time to go back to all that. So, um, 
So all these heroes are always trying to come to Crete to kill the Minotaur, and the, the Minotaur always prevails. But at this one point, Ariadne is a young girl. She's, you know, of age. She's like a teenager. And this um, this young man, Theseus, comes to, to Crete. And, oh, boy, he's an outsider. And she falls for him. He's dashing. He's foreign. He's an adventurer. He's a brave problem solver with all the answers. And so she falls really hard for him. And... Um, so he's determined to kill the Minotaur, but she really loves him and she knows that no one has survived. So she decides, okay, I want to save his life. So I'm going to give him a thread and he's going to either carry the thread or tie it to his waist or do whatever he's going to do with it. And then he's going to, it's going to unspool behind him all the, all the way into the Minotaur. And then he'll be able to find his way out of the maze, right? Mm-hmm. After he, at the labyrinth, right? After he, kills the minotaur well in ancient times it was women and young girls who did all the spinning and weaving so it's very likely that the thread that ariadne gives to theseus is thread that she personally has spun on the spinning wheel from her spindle right her energy her life thread her her um aspect of and the idea of weaving of the warp and the weft it's a big metaphor in greek it's a it's a big image in greek mythology of penelope and all kinds of and and the spider and the weaving of of the tapestries and all these different things um and so to unspin the thread of your life for someone is a big thing Mm. right metaphorically right so she gives him her thread and he follows, he follows, um, follows it in. He kills the Minotaur and he comes back. And so they decide that they're going to leave, right? And they're going to go to Athens. So first we have Theseus coming to Crete. He's the outsider. He's from Athens. She's breaking all the rules of her family. She's falling in love with a stranger. She's giving him secrets and, and ways to... Um, to defeat the Minotaur, which is a whole system that her father has set up that has to do with politics, that has to do with history, that has to do with um, international relationships, everything. So she's breaking all the rules to help this foreigner kill this Minotaur. So they decide that they're going to, so he says, oh yes, I'm going to marry you. I'm going to take you to Athens. You're going to be my bride. She says, oh my God, this is great. I'm going to get out. Well, how many times in history has the daughter sought to leave the king for the young hero and so set out on her life, right? To get away from her family, right? To individuate, to get out from under the father influence, to start their own life. But in doing this, she's going to a foreign country. So what is she doing? She's never really lived a life. This is her first love, right? So she's abandoning everything she knows, country, family, tradition, friends, relationships, everything. Right. But, Mm -hmm. you know, as in history, every child of the King must set out on their own path and seek their own destiny. Right. So in the bloom of first love, Ariadne gives everything to Theseus, her heart, her hopes, her dreams, her life thread, her creativity, what she's created. 
right? And so they depart for Athens with Theseus having declared that he's going to make her her bride. So then now she's going to be a stranger in a strange land, but she's going to be, you know, a queen, right? And um, so on the way, they stop at um, an island, uh, <clears throat> the island of Naxos. And they're sailing home and they stop at the island of Naxos. Who knows what for? To rest, to consummate their love, to have sort of a break on the sail. I don't know, right? Well, Ariadne wakes up hours later on the shore completely alone. Utterly alone, deserted, left behind on purpose or mistake. It doesn't really matter because Theseus never returns for her. Abandonment is its own tragic realm in the underworld, right? Whether we feel like we've been abandoned by family, by lovers, by um, at work where we've put everything, all of our creativity, everything into something and it has come to naught or blown up or we've been cut out of it or whatever's happened, right? And so she's standing on the cliffs watching the sails of Theseus's ship fading into the horizon. And she stands there on, on, on the cliffs shrieking to the cosmos of her grief and her confusion. She gave up everything for him, everything. Her family, her friends, her home, her country, her tradition, all that she knew, everything that was familiar to create a new life, right? And when you think about it, we all fill the spindles of our lives at the firesides of our childhood, right? With our experiences, our lives, our growing up, our relationships, our traditions, the things that we come to know, the people we come to love. And our spindles then are also unwound by those who we cho choose to share our lives with, right? And there's only a limited length of fiber on that, that spindle from our youth. And that gives way to the spinning of new fiber, new thread, right? And creating new cloth in the new lives that we create when we go out and on our own journey and create our own lives. I, but this is the way of life. So the question then becomes how many women, how many daughters, how many girls, how many lovers, how many wives, how many mothers have endured the realm of rejection, right? It doesn't have to be of a lover who took you away. It's the idea of the realm of having given everything and being rejected given everything and being rejected. And that can come in many aspects of our lives, right? And it brings up undeserved shame and regret, right? So love and the heart freely given are the greatest treasures that come with the highest price, right? So Theseus didn't have a happy return, but that's another story which I'm not so interested in right now. But Ariadne's story doesn't end here either because the god Dionysus discovers her alone asleep on the island. He finds her while she's sleeping, which is a metaphor for being unconscious, right? For being 
subsumed, being, being underwater, being under all of it. She's asleep. And he falls in love with her. He rescues her. He marries her. He transforms her into an immortal. And he takes her to live forever on Olympus with the gods and goddesses. Okay, so that's the literal, that's what happens in the story. But but who is Dionysus? He's not, he's not the shining divine God or prince who's going to come save you from being abandoned by whatever you were abandoned from, right? Dionysus is the undeniable opposite of the echoing desolation that she's experiencing. He's the personification, right, of the energy that fuels all of life's passions and joy and ecstasy. He is the polar opposite, energetic opposite of what she's experiencing. Dionysus is the energy that drove the drums, the singing, the dancing, and ecstatic ancient rituals, right? If we think of Gaia, the idea of Gaia as the personification of the earth, mother earth, and the bountiful gifts of life, Dionysus is the energy stream within that life. And it's inseparably fused with the divine feminine because it's the universal field from which all new life emerges, right? Rebirth and new creation, even of ourself, belongs to the realm of the feminine. So Dionysus is also a metaphor for rebirth because he's thrice born. Once from his mother Persephone, the queen of the underworld, then he was killed and resurrected through a mortal woman. And finally, he was resurrected through the, the thigh of his father, Zeus. So he's the essence of rebirth, and he embodies the unstoppable life force from the underworld to the top of Mount Olympus. He represents the forces and the cycles of life that are eternal and that beckon all of us to come back from those darkest places. He invites that lightning flash vision of joy and re-engagement in life, right? That shines into our darkest moment, right? The Maenads were the adult women who worshipped Dionysus and their religious rituals were held in, out in nature in the fields and the mountains. They drank and danced under the moon and women were in such ecstasy in their worship of Dionysus, they were thought to have gone mad, right? Now, Greek culture was very restrictive for women. And these celebrations out of the sight of men, away from social expectations, the women, the maenads were free to explore their essential connection with the wild places of their own nature and the natural world itself. And so here, Ariadne gave up everything to help Theseus, right? Thinking her dream would come true in Athens, right? That she'd get out from under the curse of her brother, the curse of her father, her crazy mother, right? So in the myth, Dionysus falls in love with her while she's asleep because he can see her essence on the soul level. He sees that she's naive. She's innocent, right? Her soul is unconscious in some ways. She's unaware of her tr true deeper self. And when she left, she cut herself off from her establishing roots from which her story sprang. So even before she set foot on Nexos, right, trying to sacrifice everything to become someone for something else, she was already lost because she didn't even know herself yet. So Dionysus is her own call of her own psyche to return to life. 
to begin the return for the search of who we are, right? To, to, to conjure a new image of ourselves recreated, right? And of course, there's always a catch in every myth. There's always a catch, right? Just as too much time spent lost in the vacuum of pain and grief can destroy a life, right? Too much Dionysian energy can do the same. Too much wine of ecstasy, if you want to call it that, right, can also lead to madness and destruction. So Dionysus comes to reunite her with her deeper self and to re revitalize her zest for life. So they represent a dynamic balance of the energies of life. So for this myth, to me, it's a call to people. And of course, I work with women, so and it's Ariadne, so I'm going to say to women, to know that when you're fallen and you're broken and splintered into shards on the hard marble floor of life, right, and loss, to look for Dionysus shining through the cracks, because you'll see his light reflecting off your sharp edges. Is there... Andrea, after that, like, does she stay with Dionysus or is there a next stage? She, she, she stays, she goes with Dionysus. He mm -hmm. wakes her, right? He brings her back to consciousness. He, he marries her. He makes her into an immortal, right? She becomes her higher conscious self, right? And she lives with him on Olympus forever as his wife. Because they then become the unified experience of opposites. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I felt at a certain point, I was like, you, like you were reading the story of my life back to me. I just, it really is fascinating to be walked through these myths just now, I mean, I, I just see, I spent so much time in childhood. We read, we were read fairy tales every night. We had Italian fairy tales. We had Russian fairy tales, you know, like I yeah, said before, the myths, all of that. And I, to hear that again, as an adult from this completely different perspective is really something. And is this, I mean, I'm just like, I'm wow. I have so much going on over here and you're an incredible storyteller. So just hearing the way you bring it to life was very vivid and uh, captivating. This is this part of what you do with your clients. Will you talk a little bit? You've talked about the heroine's journey. You mentioned it. Will you just, because I know most people are familiar with the hero's journey and I know they can see more on your website, but speak a little bit about what distinguishes the heroine's journey and what you do with your clients and how people can find you and just talk a little more about your work. Cause I'm, I'm transported right now and I want to know more. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, okay. So the hero's journey um, is, has become very, very um, well known uh, culturally you know, from the work of Joseph Campbell. And it's the cycle of, of the hero going out into the world, leaving the known world, going, going on a quest. Um, and, and you can look it up, you know, you can look it up on the internet. I don't want to spend an awful lot of time um, on it, but going out into the world, um, 
on a quest to discover something, find something, um, understand something, bring, go through trials, um, go through all kinds of hardships and eventually, uh, retrieve whatever it is that the hero is after and brings it back to the world uh, that he left. And it is then a gift or a boon to the world that has some transformational effect on the world that the hero lives in. Now the heroine's journey is, um, is somewhat is similar in the sense that it's, it's about the female journey, which um, there's been a lot of, of writing and a lot of discussion uh, since uh, uh, Campbell's work has come out that the heroine's journey is different. And it is, it is different because as the hero's journey is out in the world, uh, psychotherapists and um, writers are saying that the heroine's journey is more of an internal journey. And that it began and it happened that way because initially, looking at patriarchy, our world was smaller. Our world was within the confines of the home, right? And so that our journey had to happen internally, right? That journey because we were not going out into the world in the same way. Well, life has changed and, and women are now going out and making their way as we spoke in the patriarchal world. And I like to think of, of the heroine's journey, yes, as inward and down, but that each woman's path is unique and can have aspects of, of both of those things, both of those journeys in it. And so in the work that I do as a women's midlife mentor and coach, um, I work myths like what we're talking about today. Um, I've worked with women who... Uh, the the coaching the one on one coaching program I have is called the Heroine's Path, and I work with women on um, basically doing two things or doing four things: charting your position, which means let's figure out where you are, what's happening, what what are the stones you're tripping over, what's going on in your life with midlife, with menopause, with uh, the physical, the psychological, and the spiritual changes. What's happening, right? What, what is it that you're contending with that's causing you the most pain at the moment, right? We, we look at that. And I think of midlife as the top of a mountain, right? We're standing on the top of a mountain and we can look back and we can see very clearly the path that we trod to get where we are, right? But in order to understand where we're going to go, first we have to say, okay, where are we really? What's going on? We're going to, and that, that I call charting your position, right? We're going to chart your position. We're going to figure it out. Then we're going to look back and we're going to say, okay, where did we come from? We're going to look at that path. And we're going to see very clearly all the twists and turns on the roads we took. And we're going to investigate some of that because what happened in the past, right? Creates self-assumptions and ideas and attitudes about our identity and who we are and, um, and what, how we've constructed meaning making and how we do our soul making and our meaning making in our lives now. So we have, we have, you can't ignore the past because it's made you who you are. So we look behind and we bring that in. Then I say, okay, who do you want your guides to be? And this is where we pick the myths. I say, what resonates with you? You know, if it's the Celtic, if it's the Hindu, if it's fairy tales, if it's Greek, if it's whatever, 
Or if they don't know, if they don't have a particular thing, then we look to find a mythological uh, example, story, myth that deals with what the particular stone that they're tripping over is, right? So we say, okay, who are you going to be your guides? So if what you're dealing with is empty nest, or if you're dealing with, or what you're dealing with is uh, midlife crisis, whatever, maybe we'll look at the myth of Demeter, right? Which deals with so many different things for midlife, right? So, okay, so if Demeter is going to be your guide, that would be great. Okay, then if we want to say, okay, if you're feeling like you need more independence, maybe we Artemis, right, as a, as a goddess, goddess of the wild places, should be one of your guides. Uh, maybe if you're feeling um, angry and like you, you know, maybe want to, you know, be a little bit aggressive or whatever, who knows, maybe we'll pick, you know, one of the Celtic war goddesses, or maybe we'll pick Athena, whatever it is. So then you choose your guides based on what myths resonate with you. Then we work through those guides and we say, okay, where let's find your compass. Like we talked about, let's discover your compass. Um, and then we put together a map and we put together an actual actionable map and action plan for where you want to go. Because only after you know where you are and where you've come from, right? And you look at what you're, what you're stumbling over, then you can turn to the other side of the mountain and you can say, oh, okay, here, here's the future. These are all the particular paths that I could take, right? And these are the guides that are going to bring me forward. And this is what I'm going to choose to do. So yeah, everything I do in terms of helping women deal with what's going on is taking the mythic perspective, right? To, to pull out from the really, really tiny um, limiting view that sometimes we can have on our problems and taking a bigger picture look and then working through with guides, with myths, with great tales, stories, seeing, um, you know, where we are and how we're related to the greater story of life and, and then discovering, okay, where do we want to go? What do I want to do? Who am I now? Um, yeah. And so the initial program is 12 weeks. We work through, we work through the initial thing in that in 12 weeks, and then we see what's going on from there. So I don't know if that gives you, does that, does that make sense? Yeah. At all? yeah makes so much sense. <laughs> I'm like, I want more than 12 weeks. That's what I am like. That's how I felt. I'm like, is there a longer program to sign in for? It just seems so deep and broad at the same time. Uh, really, God, really good. I, um, would you, do you have just a couple more minutes? I heard an alarm go off. Do we need to end right now? Yeah, no, I have, a, I have a couple more minutes. I could, I could stay for maybe five more minutes and then okay. I have a client I have to get ready for. Okay. Perfect. So first say, and I'm going to put it all in the show notes, but will you tell people where to find you online? And then I'm going to ask my final question. Oh, sure. Um, you can go to my website, uh, which is www.drandreaslominski.com, which is why I go by Dr. A. <laughs> and so it's uh, D-R-A-N-D-R-E-A-S-L-O-M-I-N-S-K-I.com. You can also find me on um, Facebook at, um, uh, let's see, where am I? What's my Facebook? Like, uh, slash DR Andrea Slominski. I'm also on Instagram, Andrea Slominski PhD. 
Um, you can just put um, Andrea Slominski in the Google thing. You'll probably come up with it if you can remember how to spell it. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's where you can find me. Um, you can always uh, connect with me through the email through uh, the website or my email is info at drandreaslaminski.com. And that's always D-R and then my name, no spaces, no dots. So, And I signed up for your newsletter and um, I loved the, the email that I got that was based on autumn and this idea of that we are so opposed to in our culture, things lying fallow, but that that is actually a time too. So I really, that was really impactful for me. So I'm just, I'm suggesting everybody, um, yeah, stay in touch with you. So very if, awesome. If you just, if you go on my website and just uh, sign up uh, for my email list, then you'll get all the, the newsletters and blogs and those sorts of things. And yeah. uh, if you're interested in the heroine's path, you can always shoot me an email. Um, I always do a half an hour or 45 minute free consult just to talk with women to see where they're at and see if I think I can actually help them or not. And, um, and so that's always available if women want to chat about what's going on. Um, and from time to time I do a women's wisdom village. I, I did about 30 of them during COVID. They were free explorations of uh, myth looking at like where we were, you know, living isolated in the underworld and kind of giving a broader perspective. But um, I've been working on some other projects. I'm working on editing a book and a few other things. So um, I haven't been doing those, but yeah, you can get in touch with me through the website. Love to, uh, to hear from anybody. That'd be awesome. Oh, and I just have to say the way that you pull from the, like the ether of this mythology and then ground it in the reality of our lived experiences is pretty incredible really, I've just had a very vivid experience today. And my final question really is, you just say a couple of things about the idea that our physiology sort of pulls us into these different stages. I mean, puberty is sort of obvious, right? You mm -hmm. wake up to your sexuality and love and that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious about, if you just speak to maybe quickly, how the physiology of perimenopause or menopause, which I'm having a great time with just to say, interject personally, oh my God, I'm so thrilled. Um, but what does that, phys just talk about the physiology briefly. Sure. Um, there, there's there's lots of great books on, on it. One of the ones that I would suggest, it's one of the best, if you really want to understand in lay terms is um, the work of Dr. Christian Northrup because yeah. I'm a PhD, not an MD, but briefly just to speak to it is, um, you know, when our, our hormone, for instance, you know, when, when, when we go into um, adolescence and we first have our first period and we, we have our monthly cycles, you know, we have the, the regular, the longer part of the month where our, the estrogen is high and we are, hormonally encouraged to care for the house, to care for others. Then we go into the, um, the uh, PMS period, pre right? Where it's just before we get our period. And sometimes we're like much more emotional or we're more self-centered as opposed to being other centered, right? Because the estrogen drops off and we're going to be shedding the uterus and all that's going to be happening, right? That's kind of like a little microcosm 
of what happens in perimenopause and menopause. And so we go through that, those cycles every month where, where during our, right before our period and during our period, we become more me centered. And then we become more other centered when the hormone cascade changes and goes back into fertility. So when we get into perimenopause and the hormone cascade begins to change again, and the estrogen begins to fall off and all there's a huge hormone cascade that's involved in it, which that would be a whole nother program to talk about all of the, the changes that happen. But um, as the estrogen uh, depletion and uh, goes forward, that idea of centering more on the self becomes more of the focus, right? And the less estrogen we have, the less nesting, the less caring for others, we are instinctually prompted by our hormones to do. So when eventually we get into the latter parts of perimenopause, um, we then are being nudged physically by our body, but also psychologically by the pre-programmed life stage shift of midlife to our psyche, right? To reevaluate our lives, what matters, what's meaningful. And the fact that our body changes our hormone profile at the same time to reorient ourselves towards what psyche is asking for is a beautiful thing because they're working together. Yeah. It can be difficult. It can be uncomfortable. It can be unhappy. It can be all of these things, but they're pre-programmed to work together. And what they end up doing is what I call creating that spiritual shift where we say, who am I now? What do I want to do? What's, what's important for me now? What does, what does this mean? It brings up all these, the big life questions, right? Of what, of, of what does life mean? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Um, who am I uh, looking up at the sky at night? You know, you look at the Milky Way and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, who am I in, who am I or who am I or what am I even to be able to perceive the hugeness of the universe? And what does it mean? And what am I doing here? You know, all these big questions that come up. And so, so that physiological shift um, works in concert with the shift within psyche to push us towards that. And now then menopause, of course, is a moment. Menopause is the moment, the day when you have not had a period for a year and you never have another one. And once you cross that threshold, then you are post-menopause. It's like walking across a bridge. Menopause is not a period of time. It's a day. It's, it's the day when you realize it's been a year, you haven't had a period, and then you never have another one. Okay. Andrea, do you understand that I am a week from that per first 12 month period, like that first 12 months without a period, but you won't know if it's the last time you bleed? until later. Exactly. Exactly. So isn't that interesting? The idea of it being 
something that you can nail down, right? Some women will go a year and four months and they'll bleed again. Some women will go a year and six months and they'll bleed again. Some women will go a year and never bleed again. Hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a threshold. It's a rite of passage. It's a threshold crossing. And then once you get into it, realize that you are now living in a life stage that no women in 300,000 years have done together until us. Dr. Andrea Slominski, ladies and gentlemen, that was incredible. I'm just going to stop you right there because you are a phenomenal speaker and you walked us, I think you crossed a threshold with us. And that's actually the theme of my summer right now. I can't believe how aligned this conversation was. And I can't thank you enough, Andrea, for how you showed up today and for the work that you do. Thank well, you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It has been my pleasure and delight to talk with you and Quite frankly, I hope we talk later off of because yes, <laughs> I'd like to get to know you more. Me I too. Really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share my passion. Oh, just amazing. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll stay in touch. And I would probably want to bring you back here as time goes on. And wow, I don't have anything else to say. I'm just sort of transported <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna breeze on out of here. Wow, you're awesome. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> What's a dirt road less traveled? It's owning the unexpected adventure of your life. Yeah, you're covered in mud, no map in hand, but you feel so alive, like your life has real meaning and you're absolutely on the right path. You've been listening to Dirt Road Less Traveled. If you like what you hear, share an episode with a friend or share many episodes with several of your friends and make sure that you hit subscribe. And if you want to find out how to connect what we talk about on the show to your own life, come check out what's happening at mayawild.com. The conversation over there is all about how to live like you're on a mission. And what's that mission? Doing life as the real you. Living on purpose healing all the old, being able to envision the new, and of course, expressing the hell out of yourself. That's mayawild.com. I'm Maya Wild. This is Dirt Road Less Traveled. Until next time, stay true to yourself out there.